Thanks for listening to the Sermons Podcast by Calvary Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Harrisville, Pennsylvania. Our purpose is to spread the good news of salvation through Jesus Christ. If you'd like to know more about us, check us out at harrisvilleopc.org. Okay, I'm going to go back to 1 Peter chapter 1 and talk about verses 3 to really 12. Now I'm going to focus in on 13 to 16. Once again, I must confess to you, dear people, that I have uh, not appreciated... One of the three remarkable things that are given to every believer in Christ are faith, hope, and and love. And I, I haven't really spoken much about hope and how to develop hope. What, what, what's hope doing for us? Uh, we've, we know a lot about faith and a lot about love. But uh, hope, I don't think so much. At least I have not emphasized it as much as I think I ought to. Just like many Christians would say that we probably haven't heard much preaching, if any, on the ascension. Right? We hear about the resurrection, we hear about the crucifixion, the cross of Christ and all, but what about the ascension? That, that's a doctrine that's neglected as well in the church Jesus Christ. Not totally, but somewhat. Anyway, let me just read something that uh, uh, Reverend John Marcus said. He's a Protestant Reform Minister. By way of introduction into the passage that we're going to look at, he said, Every child of God who hopes for heaven will also strive for holiness. I think that's important. Uh, for us to consider, every child of God who hopes for heaven will strive for holiness. And you see the connection already between hope, holiness, and heaven. You can't, you, if you didn't disconnect one of them, you're, you're, you're losing, you're affecting, uh, negatively, you're affecting the others. They go together. Hope, holiness, and heaven. He said, not because we have to do something to earn our way into heaven, but because God always works in a certain order. Whenever he works to give us the hope of heaven, he also gives us a desire for holiness. So you see the connection there already. If our hope is for heaven, we're going to strive to be holy. Makes sense, I think, right? Well, we'll see. By God's grace, and grace... By the way, whenever you see the word grace, it implies four things. Not all four things at once. Uh, Beauty, favor, undeserved favor, and power. That's what the word grace. In the Hebrew and through the Greek means. Right? Uh, So grace is... 
makes you beautiful. It is favor, the favor of God upon you. It is undeserved favor. And it is power. God is reserving a glorious inheritance for us in heaven, and he is preserving us until he brings us there. What a glorious hope we have in Jesus Christ. And then he asks the question, is our hope evident to others? So now I want us to listen to uh, the scripture here first. And just take it in as best you can. That's why I try, that's why I want to... Uh, you to hear my every word because I'm reading the scripture and you should hear every word of it. Even if it's in our own language, English, it's a pretty fair translation. I'm using the King James. You may have uh, another translation. But they, they, the translators have done a pretty good job over the course of centuries to give us the word in our language. So it's reliable. So let us now hear God's word from First Peter chapter 1. I'm going to start at verse 3 and read... No, just through verse 16. So, dear people of God, hear, hear your God. Hear your God through his uh, revelation in First Peter chapter 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled, and it fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, and there is need be. This tis the season, this need be. Ye are in heaviness through manifold temptations, that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perishes, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, ye love. In whom, though now ye see him not, yet believing, ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, who prophesied of the grace that should come unto you, searching what, what manner of time the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. Dear people, you know more now than any of the prophets did back then. You know more now than any of the prophets. Unto whom, verse 12, unto whom it was revealed that not unto themselves but unto us they did minister the things which are now reported unto you by them that have preached the gospel to you with the Holy Ghost sent down from heaven which things the angels desire to look at. Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation every inch of your life. Because it is written, Be holy, 
for I am holy. May the Lord bless this portion of his holy word to our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Lord, be with us now and all the more as the gospel is read and preached upon the truth of your word. Uh, For this we ask and pray in your name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin by telling you, not something you don't already know, In fact, much of what I have to say today, this morning, is what you have come to know already. So I'm reminding you of many things, perhaps some things new. Some of the quotes you may not have heard that I'm going to make during the course of my message, but uh, you know all this before. First, I want to say that faith, hope, love, forgiveness, repentance, everyone knows of such things and practices such, believers and unbelievers alike, they know and practice faith, hope, love, forgiveness, repentance, or sorrow. However, such virtues are not alike. And and that's the crucial matter. That's the thing we need to understand. That's the thing we need to meditate upon and grow. They're not alike between believers and unbelievers. Right? Faith, hope, love, forgiveness, repentance, and so on. They're they're practiced by everyone. Everybody knows about them. But they're, they're, they're not alike. Unbelievers have faith. Right? They have faith. They believe in things in people. They understand in part what faith is. We're not speaking another a completely angelic language to them when we say you need to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you need to have faith. We need to unpack that a little. It's not just an intellectual thing, it's a trust and all that. But, you know, they understand intellectually. And they, they even practice faith. They have faith in things. They have faith in people. They have faith in themselves. And so on and so forth. But they do not have saving faith. They have plenty of faith. But one kind of faith, if you will, they lack. Saving faith. And so they cannot exercise that kind of faith apart from the grace of the Holy Spirit working in them, right? Likewise, They have wills. They make choices, and so do we. We make hundreds and thousands of choices during the course of our life. Probably even during the course of a week, we make hundreds of choices, right? We all make choices. We may even agree to to some degree that that's free will, right? The choices that we make, there's a free will involved. But, but... As Jonathan Edwards points out, no one has spontaneous free will. And that's what the Arminians mean, and that's what the unbelievers mean, and that's what they mean on the television shows when they talk about their free will, when they talk about their choice and their freedom to choose. They are thinking it's spontaneous. It's not attached to anything. It's not informed by anything. It's not restricted by anything. And that's where they're wrong. There's no such thing, as Jonathan Edwards points out in his writing. You should read that if you haven't read it on free will. It's a little deep, 
but it's because he's a philosopher, greatest philosopher of, uh, in America. Uh, but he he uh, he writes about it and he talks about this. There's no such thing as spontaneous free will. Just pops up anytime, anywhere, totally free, not bound by anything. No, a person always uh, Edwards points this out, I'm paraphrasing, a person always chooses his most salient desire at the time of choice. His strongest desire informs his choice. Even when choosing simply fish and chips or steak and eggs. What do you really prefer now? What are you really wanting? What are you doing? You see, that's where your choice is limited. You always, always choose what you desire. The strongest desire. Even when you're choosing, well, are we a red dress or are we a green dress? You have a stronger desire towards the one than the other. Maybe for various reasons, but that's, choice is not spontaneous. It's a catch. It's informed by something. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you will not believe because you cannot believe. For some reason, people miss that. Christians miss that. Jesus confronted them. You will not believe in me because you cannot believe in me. I mean, that's pretty straightforward language. Even in the Greek. You will not because you cannot. In other words, unbelievers do not have it in them to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved. It's not in them. They don't have it there. They don't have a desire to do so unless and until the Spirit moves in the soul to give them that desire. They simply will remain deaf and dumb to that choice. It's just, why don't you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved and go to heaven and all that? I don't want to. I have no desire to do so. My choice. That's right. Hope works in the same way. Love works in the same way. Unbelievers have hopes. Right? Unbelievers hope. They know what hope is. They have desires. They have wishes. May we, we all hope that a future event will turn out okay and, and even have a, a reasonable expectation it will turn out okay, like the picnic yesterday, that it wasn't going to rain on our parade, and it didn't, but we had a pretty good expectation it wouldn't because they told us in the weather that it was going to. And even our children have hopes. They have dreams. They have wishes that favorable things and events will happen, and sometimes without disappointment, they do. Everybody has hope, even children. However, unbelievers do not have a born-again hope, which Peter calls in verse 3, for example, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy had begotten us again unto a lively hope. By the resurrection, they don't have a resurrection hope. A hope in the resurrection. They don't have a, a, an alive and well hope given to them by the Holy Spirit. They don't have that without being born again by the power of God. 
They don't have that desire, that hope to enjoy the guaranteed, beautiful, wonderful future hope that believers have through the operation of the Holy Spirit working them. It's going to be, we are looking forward to a beautiful, a magnificent, a wonderful future. They don't have that. It's not there. It's just not there. They have many hopes, but they don't hope that. That's not a motivation moving them towards a motivation. They have a hope to be successful in their business and their practice. They have a hope to build a home and live in a home in a nice place. And they have all kinds of hopes, but not a hope to be resurrected and live in glory in heaven. It's just not there. Everyone loves. Everyone Everyone loves somebody. It's pretty old. But everyone does, does love somebody. Everyone loves many things and many people. Love, right? What love is? Everyone has it. And it's a remarkable statement to hear of someone who loves no one and hates most. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? I mean, there, I guess there are people like that, but oh my, what a monster. I not love anyone and hates most. But we would all, whether we're believers or unbelievers, we would all rather uh, adopt uh, Lord Tennyson's poetic counsel. Lord Tennyson said in his poem, It is better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Unbelievers have that too. They believe that. It's better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all. Christians know it's better to love God than not, and this love will never be lost. Dear brethren, it, it, it's a sad thing. It's, it's very sad. Unbelievers do not know the deep, deep love of Jesus. They just do not. And that's sad. Especially members of your own family. Doesn't it break your heart? How about a good friend that you have? It just doesn't. Know the love of Jesus. How, how, how much we are afraid to let someone know that their loved one, a person that we love and we care about, a friend and all that, uh, we, we, we hesitate. to tell them that their loved one is probably not in heaven. Right? We don't say that. At funerals, even of people that die that, that weren't believers, you don't go to a funeral home and tell them, you know, your loved one here, he's not in heaven, he's burning in hell, but you don't have to. You don't say that. We're even reluctant to, in a personal conversation with, a per, with, with somebody, a friend of ours, that's not saved. We, we hesitate to say, you're going to hell. You keep doing this, you're going to hell. Said. Our text connects three spiritual realities that unbelievers do not experience. And sadly, some Christians do not appreciate as much as we should. 
Uh, listen for these three things. You've, I've already pointed them out. But verses 13 uh, to 16. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lust in your ignorance. He's probably talking to some Gentiles as well. Uh, who are following in the worldly ways. But as he which has called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation, because it is written, Be ye holy, for I am holy. And so verse 13, I, I want to, I, I skip that, but we have forgird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There's the hope. As obedient children, not fashion yourselves according to the lust of your and your goodness, but as he which called you to holy, there's the holiness, and it is is uh, in verse 13 that we're looking for the grace that is to be brought unto us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. There is heaven. That's the parasites, referring to the parasites. He's referring to the return of Jesus Christ on the clouds of glory when he's going to transform your uh, your body uh, and and bring it with uh, bring it together with your soul and perfect your soul and body. At that time. So look for that grace that is brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So there are the three items that uh, is, uh, I want to emphasize. I want to talk about just a little bit more to uh, closing time here. Uh, and that is uh, our hope, our heaven, and our holiness. Uh, so, uh, Lord Jesus. <clears throat> We want to uh, kind of ask, how do you, uh, how do these verses help us to develop uh, in hope and in holiness? Uh, there are two imperatives that uh, participles that are uh, used as imperatives. Uh, they jump forth uh, to uh, serve us. And the first is to gird up the loins of your mind and be sober. And the second is to think on things above where Christ is and not on things below. These two things, to gird up the loins of your mind and be sober and to think on things above where Christ is uh, in heaven, will develop our hope and our holiness. The idea of girding up the loins of your mind comes from the culture. F.B. Myers, in his uh, Meyer, in his commentary, remarks: uh, Eastern fashions suggest the figure of girt loins. There, the loose and flowing robes uh, suit well the deliberate mo- movements which the climate begets. You know, in that kind of climate, they wore robes. You know, I heard a a person argue, a pastor argue from the pulpit one time about women dressing in pants. And he was saying to the congregation, this was a Baptist congregation, and I don't know if you realize, at least the Baptists, with their conservative Baptists, all the women have to dress in dresses and with hats. That's not anymore the case, but it used to be in a lot of places anyway. Certainly fundamentalist Baptists. And he said, from the he said, 
No one dressed that way in dresses. Women didn't dress in dresses at the time. Everybody wore robes. Everyone wore robes. And everyone wore these uh, head coverings because of the weather, because of the climate. And because they wanted to be loose and flowing. They didn't wear dresses. They didn't wear pants. They didn't wear... Had to actually, if you gird up the loins of your garment and pull it up around your waist, there are the pants. Because then they, they drop down to just below the knees and that's so that you can move more freely. So he was basically telling them, women can dress in pants if they want. That, that wasn't the point back then. There's no... Per, there's no particular dress that God has in mind. Uh, tradition would have it, dress in your Sunday best. You know, you would, as you would do when you go to a funeral or to a wedding or some other place, you know, dress in bathing suits and loose or tight jeans and stuff like that. You, you know, certain things. But again, I'm not into dressing women. So forget I said anything. Uh, but, but the loose and flowing robes suit well the deliberate movements which the climate begets. But they would grievously hamper pilgrim, wrestler, and warrior. When the Israelites were momentarily expecting the summons for the exodus, at any time now they were surrounding the table of the Paschal Lamb and they had their garments girt. They were ready to travel. They were ready to run. To move fast. So they girt their garment pulled it up, tucked it in their belt, ready to move. <clears throat> they stood with their loins girt around the tables of the Paschal Lamb. So, thus too, the prophet of fire, that's Elijah, girt himself with the swift courier run before Ahab's chariot. He beat the chariot running from Carmel to Jezreel. In 1 Kings 18, you can read about that, verse 46. Our minds are clad with the flowing garments of various states. Obviously, he's talking metaphorically here, the, the apostle, right? And he says, gird up the loins of your mind. He's not talking about a garment now. He's talking about the garment of your mind. Gird it. Pull it up. The commentator says, Our minds are clad with the flowing garments of various tastes, appetites, affections, propensities, which hang loosely around us, constantly catching in the things of the world and hindering us in the Christian race. Worldly stuff, worldly items, appetites, passions, whatever, are going to hinder you in your Christian walk, in your Christian movement. We must not let them stream as they will, or we do so at our peril. So we try to teach our young people, we try to warn them away from certain things because the consequences of those things, we by experience know, are very negative. Absalom rude the day when his uh, luxuriant tresses floated behind him in the breeze. We must gird up the habits of our soul, 
trim ourselves so as to pass as quickly and easily as possible through the thorny jungle of the world. Hold your spirit in tight. Curb your appetite. Say no. Say no to luxurious pleasure seeking. Say no to it, even on vacation. No. Curtail your expenditure on yourself and all your toys and all your pleasures. Curtail it. Do not spread yourself too widely. Watch eye and lip. Thought and wish. Lest any break from the containing cords of self-control. Keep thy heart with all diligence. Give vanity fair or, you know, the fashionistas of the day. As little chance as possible by passing swiftly and un ostentatiously through. Don't be distracted by that. You get the point, right? Our Lord taught. Take no thought for the morrow, what you shall eat, what you shall drink, what you shall wear. Didn't he say that in the great sermon on the mount? We all know, we all heard dozen times or so. Take no thought for the morrow. What you shall eat, what you shall drink, what you shall wear. He doesn't mean that, does he? Well, he didn't mean have no concern for your future. Do not consider what you're eating or drinking or wearing. He never said that. He doesn't mean that. He meant do not obsess over these things. Do not worry about these things, these, the things that the world worries about and spends an ordinary amount of time chasing. Even the basics. You know what happens when, you, when you're constantly worrying, constantly talking about, constantly thinking about what to eat, what to drink, what to wear, up month, what's my weight, what's my measurement, what's my this, what's my that. It, it, it crowds your thought life. It crowds out God. It crowds out the more important things that will help you to eat, drink, and wear things that are right if you focus on God. Your worries, your anxieties, your troubles about this and that and the other thing. Crowd out what's really important and going to change you the most. You're instructed by the Apostle, inspired by the Spirit of God, of course, to be sober-minded. And that means temperate. That means self-control. That means clear-headed as opposed to being drunk with passions and emotions. You're just all over the place and oh my, I'm crying and all this. I'm concerned about this. I'm troubled about that. You're drunk with your own emotions. 
The apostle does not mean, however, when he says be sober-minded, to be stern in your demeanor, to be strict on your children and on your grandchildren and, and prevent them and ban them from all kinds of stuff. It doesn't mean that. To be harsh in your judgments, condemning others for enjoying themselves and having amusements and going on vacation and things like that. The pleasures and the joys of life that God has provided for our comfort and our amusement so as to live in rigid fashion. He's not talking about that when he's talking about when he says to be sober-minded. Rather, he says, focus. Focus. Hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Focus your attention on your hope for heaven. On what's going to happen when you get to your final destination. When you... With all your life, you're aiming towards this, in this one direction, heavenward, where Christ is found. Focus on that. Be sober. Be clear-minded about that. Instead of being overwhelmed, drunk on your passions, with your passions, your emotions, your desires, and such. Says Meyer, commentary. Set your hope perfectly, and I, and I add, it's my words, on things above and beyond. Set your hope perfectly. The grace which is to be brought unto us when the veiling clouds are rent and the Lord Jesus Christ is revealed from heaven will far surpass everything you imagine. Every joy, every desire, even every good thing that you now experience, what is in store for you, dear brothers, dear sisters, in just a little while, you can't even imagine. Hope is the lamp of the soul. This is how, how hope is used, dear people. This is, this is what... Are the hope that is given us by God, this is the way it's used. We have a hope, a lively hope. We have a resurrection hope. We have a hope that we're going to land in heaven. Use that hope. Use that hope to motivate you towards heaven every single day. That's what he's saying here. Use your hope that you have, the real living hope that you have working in you. Just like you use your faith. To block out untruths and bad doctrines and stuff like that. Use your hope. It's the lamp of the soul passed down from saint to saint as the old Greek race. But destined to be eclipsed in the light which is to break ere long upon our spirits. The day of perfect, perfected redemption of glorified creation, of a perfect or perfected church. Hope, 
towards heaven, <coughs> where Christ is, where your loved ones, where your loved ones have gone before you, where your new beautiful homeland is found. Hope for heaven and home. Draw near to God, who is the single source of holiness. As we read in uh, verse 16, Be ye holy, for I am holy, according from Leviticus 19. Be ye holy, for I Only God is the source of holiness. There is no holiness in us. We are unholy. We are born in sin. We are unholy from conception to death. Holiness resides with God. There is no holiness apart from God. That's his beauty. That's God's beauty. His holiness. And only God is holy. He's the source of all holiness. We are unholy. God's Holy Spirit makes us holy so that we may, what? Obey. Right? Holiness is the possession of the soul by God. Can I repeat that? Holiness is the possession of the soul by God. That's how I become holy. That's how you become holy. We're possessed by God, by God's Spirit. Only He can make us holy. Holiness is not obedience, but it always results in obedience. Obedience and holiness are different. But they're attached. But people obey. Children obey their parents, their teachers. We obey p- people in authority. Not necessarily out of a sense of holiness. We obey for other reasons. It might benefit ourselves or something like that. It might get a, a treat. Like a dog obeys. Because she gets a treat. Make the dog holy because he obeys. Obedience is not holiness, but holiness always manifests obedience. But a holy obedience to God's word, that's what we need to remember, that my holiness comes from the Holy Spirit who empowers me to read the word of God, understand the word of God, take it into my life, and express the word of God in my character, in my person. Yeah, it's different than the, whole, than the obedience that the world has. And when I obey my God, and dear people, this is hard. This is not easy. I'm obedient because I know what God wants. I read it in His Word. I understand it. I meditate upon it. I pray about it. And then I go out to reveal my obedience to others. But, do I do it for merit or from gratitude? And I'm saying you're not always clear about what what your motivation is, are you? Because we still have that old man, we still have a sinful nature. So, I'm going to be obedient to God. I'm going to be the best preacher that I can be. I am going to be as clear as possibly can, as honest as I possibly can. 
out of gratitude or out of merit. That's why I've told people, don't compliment me. It goes to my head. It does. It goes to my head. Now, a little bit of compliment's not bad, but, you know, it, it just does. It, it's hard not to do good things for the glory of God and not want to pat on the back. Something. Some merit. Some blessing. Now, a lot of Christians are, they're, they're, they're so dull-minded that they do what they do for merit, and they don't even see it. They want the pat on the back. They want the blessings. They want. They think that they're be, they're approved by God because of how good they have been and how you know they'll, they'll give the shirt off their back and all that stuff. And they want some some recognition. They don't say that, but that's why they do it. And they're dull-minded enough not to even see it. I'm saying that we should we do whatever we do for the glory of God. We do it out of thankfulness and gratitude for so great a salvation that we have been given, freely given. That's why we, that's why we act the way we do. That's why we obey God. That's why we're, we're moving in the pathway of holiness. Because we love. Because we're so thankful. These are expressions of thanksgiving to you, Lord. These are expressions of gratitude. I give. What's the saying? We, uh, we live to get, but we uh, develop our life, our home, by giving. Peter begins uh, verse uh, 13 with a wherefore or therefore, which refers back to the graces mentioned in verses 3 to 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his abundant mercy, has begotten us unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to inheritance incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you, and kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. We are in great rejoice, so now for a season, if need be, you are in heaviness through manifold temptations. So look at those blessings. Look at those mercies, look at those graces, begotten again, a lively hope, and an incorruptible inheritance, kept by the power of God through faith, salvation of your soul, mentioned in verse 9, even the trying of your faith, which is more precious than gold tried by fire, mentioned in verse 7, all these graces, all these mercies, and then add to that the grace which lies ahead at the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Oh, at the resurrection, your resurrection. And that grace that you look towards, all these graces that he reminds you of in verses 3 through actually 12 here, and I just mentioned a few of them, begotten again, lively hope, incorruptible, and so on, all these graces, and then add to those graces, this grace that is mentioned in verse 13, that you hope to the end for the grace, for the grace that is to be brought, it's not there yet, unto you at the revelation of the Jesus Christ when you are raised to glory and your salvation, which has already begun, is brought to fruition, to completion. And now, though you are beautiful because you have God's grace, you are beautiful in His sight because you have God's grace, you have God's favor, because you have God's grace, you have an undeserved favor, because of God's grace, you have power, that you have salvation in a word. That salvation, that beauty, 
beauty, that uh, luster that has already begun in you will be made perfect and you will become as beautiful a person. There is no ugliness in heaven. There will be no ugliness in you whatsoever. No warts, no Nothing bad, nothing that is going to be unattractive in heaven. Your beauty, which is now just begun, is going to shine. It's going to shine like the sun. You are going to appear like an angel. That is what he's talking about. For that grace, looking ahead for that grace that's going to make you so beautiful, it motivates you to be holy. See how it connects? You hope for that grace that's going to come to you in just a little while. You hope for that grace. And because you hope so much for that grace, that beauty, that perfected, that perfectness, that perfection, it motivates you to, do, to be holy as God is holy. And so that's what our worship ought to do. It ought to help us focus, which is what I'm doing today, this morning, now, this afternoon. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's to focus our attention. And I hope I've done some of a, of, of a job here, some of a good job. Uh, if, if our worship, and I believe it is, Calvary Church, if our worship is true to his word, it should build us up in faith, hope, and love for God. It should, it should encourage us in our faith, in our hope, in our love for God. And in turn, promote holiness uh, as, uh, as you focus on that. Pastor, my mind sometimes wanders. My thoughts, they drift. What do you do about that? Well, you see, this is the kind of thing that uh, teaches us how to pray. What do you pray for? You pray for a lot of things, right? But you should be praying for this. This is the kind of prayer you should be praying for in Saturday night, preparing for service, or even Sunday morning. Lord, help me to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and his holiness. That's what you should be praying for. You, you pray for a whole lot of things. I'm not saying you, you're bad doing that. You have a whole prayer list. Are you praying for this? When I come to worship, I want to be able to seek first the kingdom. I want to be keeping my mind focused. I want to stay on to I don't want to wander off into the world. Into, into Monday. Or Tuesday, or so on. Father, you delight in worshipers full of your spirit and full of truth. Remind God, in other words, if I may be... If I may say it this way, remind God, you don't remind God, but you know, remind God of his word. Tell him his word and his promise. Tell him that in your prayer. Remind him of his word and he will remind you. I guarantee you, brothers and sisters, he will remind you of his presence. Remind him of his word, he will remind you of his presence. Be attentive to his word and his ways. And he will answer your prayer and he will brighten your life. And I just want to read this again and close with a just small quote uh, from Matthew, the great Sermon on the Mount. You all have heard it before. And I just want to remind you of verses 7 to 11. They're very familiar to most Christians. Matthew 7, verses 7 to 11. Ask and it shall be given. Seek and ye shall find. Knock and it shall be opened to you. For everyone that asks receives. Everyone that seeks finds. Everyone that knocks, it's open. 
And then this is the important thing I want you to remember. Of what man is there of you whom if, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, and ain't that the truth, as they say, if you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him? And the good thing he's referring to is Gospel of Luke, the Spirit. Remind God of his word and of his promises, and he will remind you of his presence in your life. And so, it's the end. The brief days of sojourning pass quickly on, and the vision of the homeland beckons to us and bids us mend our pace. And as the prophet Haggai said, Dear people, consider your ways. Let's pray. Heavenly Lord, we are thankful to be here. We're thankful to be in your presence. We're thankful that we know that if we pray according to your word, according to your will, you, what we ask, we will receive. And we have, we, what we ask, Heavenly Father, is that you find a Calvary Church, you find your people here, full of your spirit, and Calvary Church, full of your spirit, and a blessing, a blessing. First, uh, honoring our God, and a blessing to one another. And it's in Jesus' name we ask this and pray this. Amen. Let's